Let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that, as we've seen in the Scripture, the Lord Jesus, healing people of physical and spiritual infirmities, thank you for this demon-oppressed man who started a chain reaction with his healing as he was able to speak and he was able to see after not being able to do that because of the oppression of the demon. Thank you for the truth that that led to be spoken. And thank you that the truth is something for us today. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to be able to realize the message the Lord Jesus gave as a result of that happening. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Divided house cannot stand. We saw that in the scripture that was read for us. We understand that as we see around us in all areas of society, we see disunity. We see situations where could be in a household, could be in a church, could be in a country that makes it appear as if unity is something that is going to be very, very hard to achieve. Something that's going to have to be worked out very, very hard. Some of you who are historians may recognize at least one of these individuals. On June 16th, 1858, more than a thousand delegates met in the Springfield, Illinois State House for the Republican State Convention. Five o'clock p.m., they chose Abraham Lincoln as their candidate for the U.S. Senate, running against a Democrat by the name of Stephen A. Douglas. That night at 8 o'clock, Lincoln delivered an address to his Republican colleagues in the Hall of Representatives in Illinois. The title of his speech was, A House Divided Against Itself Cannot Stand. That's a concept that was very familiar to the audience that Mr. Lincoln had at that particular time because it was a statement Jesus made recorded not just in Matthew but in Mark and Luke as well. Some of Lincoln's friends and supporters told him not to use that kind of verbiage. They said it would cost him the election. It may have done that because he lost that election to Mr. Douglas. Two years later, that same statement may well have been a catalyst to help him to win a more important election because that was the election of 1860 and he was elected as president that year. You could say he lost the battle, but he won the war. Actually, he won two wars, if you consider the presidency and then the Civil War. Back to 1858, even Lincoln's friends regarded the speech as too radical for that occasion. His law partner, a man by the name of William Herndon, considered Lincoln as morally courageous, but politically incorrect. You thought we coined that expression during this time, but that's exactly the expression that he used. Lincoln read the speech to his friend before delivering it, referring to the house divided language this way. The proposition is indisputably true, and I will deliver it as written. I want to use some universally known figure expressed in simple language as universally known that it may strike home to the minds of men in order to rouse them to the peril of the times. He wanted to make a point. 
He wanted that point to be validated. How better to do it than to quote from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He could go no higher than he did to give credibility to what he was trying to say. He wanted people to be able to remember something. A house divided against itself cannot stand, and neither can a nation. That's why he fought against slavery, but he fought for the union as well. Peril of the time, of course, the Civil War, but those words are true today. Let's look at the context out of which Jesus made that statement originally. What was happening when Jesus spoke of the impossibility of a divided house standing? And is there any application for us today? Does it speak to us as citizens of the United States? Does it speak to us as members of Alden Union Church? Began with the healing of a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. The scripture was read. It was sung about, in fact, in verse 22. It's now becoming commonplace in our study of Matthew's gospel to see Jesus doing great things. This is one of many, perhaps thousands that have already been alluded to in Matthew, where the Lord Jesus would go somewhere, he would heal, he would keep healing, he would perform miracles over and over and over again. Most of them we're not told of. We're just told that there were a whole lot of them. But the aftermath of this particular one was highly, highly unusual. There was a chain reaction from this one healing that we're going to take a look at. Because what happened next triggered deep truth to be spoken. If you look again at verses 23 and 24, when that demon-oppressed, blind, mute man was healed, we're told that the people were amazed. How many of the people were amazed? If you're looking at the text, all the people were amazed. Amazed is from the Greek word existanto. It means to be totally astounded. It means to be beside oneself with amazement and wonder. It means to be knocked off of one's feet. Somehow this miracle seemed to have superseded some of the other ones because this one really got their attention. That word existanto, ex means out of. They were out of their minds when they saw what had happened here. Left a huge impression on the people. They wondered if Jesus could be the promised Messiah. They wondered if he could be this son of David that was prophesied. Could it be real? Is he here now? Well, there was a problem with that resulted from that. There was a counter-reaction by the Pharisees. And their counter-reaction was the low point of what we see about the Pharisees. We've said a lot of things already, and we will see a lot of things that are not complimentary about the Pharisees, but this was their low point. What they did was they accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. doesn't get any worse than that. They saw what Jesus had done, and they said, this is by the power of Satan. That reference to Satan is seen in the name Beelzebul, the prince of demons. We've already become acquainted with that name back in chapter 10. Other translations use the name Beelzebub, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Baal. Remember the false god that was worshipped, the god Baal, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. It was never meant to be a complimentary expression. It was a parody on. It was a mockery of the actual epithet 
exalted Baal or Baal the prince, as some of his followers would call him. But as we see in the next few verses, it was another name for Satan. Pharisees then not only blaspheme the Son of God, but they backed themselves into a corner by their totally illogical conclusion that Jesus was casting out demons using the power of the prince of demons. Makes no logical sense. What is in it for the prince of demons to have his demons cast out by somebody else? And that's the point that the Lord Jesus is going to get into. So what happened after this great miracle triggered deep truth? What was that deep truth? We see it in verses 25 through 29. It's introduced by telling us that Jesus knew their thoughts. After all, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Goes along with his divinity. And he cited four axioms in general terms. Look at verse 25. This is the first of those axioms. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. I think that's self-explanatory. We understand that. Kingdom divided against itself is not going to stand, as he says again in verse 25. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Do you notice if you look on the screen, if you're looking at your scriptures at verse 25, this, this is going from the greater to the lesser. Every kingdom, every city, every house... And in fact, everything in between all of that, every entity, every unit is not going to be able to stand. So Lord Jesus, making this very, very clear to us. Now, I'd like to illustrate this for those of you that are visual learners. I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need a couple of volunteers to help us. Maybe you've got a little volleyball in your background. We're going to show some teamwork, some unity. Anybody volunteer to help? Anybody? Oh, I see two hands right away. From the Hedell family. Would that be Amber back there? And that's Dr. Hedell. Come on, come on up here. Two more volunteers. Mr. Adams, Jim Adams. And okay, come on up. It's youth on athletic. Nice. Okay, now uh, we're actually going to go to the back now that you're up here. Okay. The object is simple teamwork. We've got a balloon. We want to get the balloon from the back to the front. You're going to work as a team. You're going to not be able to hit the balloon twice in a row. You've got to use your teammate and your teammates. Let's see how quickly we can go down to the front, exercising unity and teamwork. By the way, the balloon cannot hit the floor. If it does, we all explode. Go. Go, go. Teamwork. Don't let it hit the floor. Don't hit it twice in a row, the same person. Look at that, the teamwork. Look at them going. Okay, come on. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. Let's pretend that didn't happen. But let's also say, great to see Dr. Hiddell using his head. Okay, let's go. We've got to get to the front here. Teamwork. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, 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 wait. What was, what was that all about? Okay, the teamwork. Come on, come on. Here we go. I'm not in this. <laughs> Use everybody. Hey, oh, well. Whoa, I'm not in this. <laughs> quick, quick, quick. No, no. Now, question. 
What were you doing? (laughs) Okay, you may be seated. Now, what we were demonstrating visually, we had a little trouble, and I hate to call out names, but Amber was causing a little trouble there. She was actually a saboteur planted on that team beforehand so that we would be able to see that a house divided against itself, a team divided against itself, cannot stand. Now, if we had played this all out, there would have been an explosion right around where Dick and Sue are sitting over here for the first time, and it would have been all over. But those of you who are visual, I hope you'll remember the point that is being made there. No city, well, first of all, no kingdom, no city, no house, no family, no church, no team. Divided against itself is ever going to be able to stand. So Jesus' point, whenever there is a unit and it's divided against itself, there's going to be a catastrophe. One of the things that we have to do at Alden Union Church, we have to guard our unity in Christ with absolutely everything that we have. And you understand, we've said this a lot of times in the last few months, there is great change in the winds at Alden Union Church. For one thing, we will be undergoing a change in the senior pastor. New pastor ultimately will come in. New pastor who may be totally different than, I started to say the old pastor, the former pastor (laughs) may be totally different. He may come in and have a sense of humor. And you won't be used to that. And you'll say, what's happening to us. We've got somebody with a sense of humor. That's not good. Levity's bad. Um, and you understand I've modeled that as, as well as I can. Let me share something else by way of change. Alden Union Church, I have before me attendance statistics for a 12-year period ending in 2014. You may not have realized this, but we've been frog and kettled for the last 12 years our overall attendance in the morning services has actually gone down 26%. Goes fluctuates year to year, but overall it's down. This service has gone down 26.2%. The second service has gone down 21.2%, and that average is out to roughly 26%. The evening service, even further, 34%. Bible school, 28%. Adult department, but the children have gone down 38% in that 12-year period. Now, that's something that the church leaders have been hard at work. We've been dealing with this now for uh, trying to reverse this trend, coming up with ideas. And we've come up with some ideas, and we're still working on others. And we've got a lot of reasons why this is happening. We've identified maybe a dozen or more reasons why this is happening. And what we've got to be very careful to do is to realize that change is always threatening and it is a great threat to unity. And that's why we're saying that as we look ahead at the future of Alden Union Church, the seeds are there for disunity. The seeds are there for people to get upset. And what we're saying is this, as our leaders are working on some things and some things will come out, some things we can do nothing about with regard to attendance. We, We can't help it. When people die, when they move away, we can't help that. Some things we can help and we're going to try to do that. But I've got to say this, no matter what solutions come into play, it will rock some boats. It will ruffle some feathers. And if we're not careful, Satan will have a heyday. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear that a house divided against itself cannot stand.
And so, looking at some scriptures, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, uh, the last part I'll read, it says, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you know what that's saying? That's saying some changes may come. I may not like them. Do you know what? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the body. It's about what's best. Another scripture, Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So when we're applying these powerful words of the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is saying that a kingdom, a city, a house, a household, a church divided amongst itself will not stand. And so we've got to guard that unity. Thirdly, as we're looking at four axioms of the Lord Jesus, look at verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? How in the world can you accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan and fighting against Satan and Satan empowering him to do that? It makes no sense. There's no logic to that whatsoever. And then the fourth axiom, it's not really an axiom, it's more of a question, but in verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, that is, those sons, will be your judges. What does that mean? In the Believer's Bible Commentary, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, but some of their Jewish associates were known as exorcists. They claimed to have the power to cast out demons. Now, Jesus neither admitted nor denied their claim, but he used it to point out that if he cast out demons by Beelzebul, then the Pharisees' sons, in other words, these exorcists who are among them, they did also. The Pharisees would never admit this, but could not escape the logic of the argument. Their own sons would judge them inconsistent. For if the power to cast out demons is satanic, then whoever exercises that power is in league with the source of that power. So the Lord Jesus is saying it makes no sense whatsoever to accuse me of being in league with Satan because Satan is not going to be fighting against himself. If he were, his kingdom would immediately collapse. It will collapse ultimately, but not immediately. If you look at verses 28 and 29, because then Jesus explained a deep truth now in more specific terms. He was speaking generally. Now he gets very specific. Verse 28 But if it is not Satan empowering Jesus, if it is God the Holy Spirit instead, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then you better take note. Now you better be careful. Because if it's not of Satan, what is it of? And it's of the kingdom of God that is there. Jesus applied more logic in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house? And you understand that if you understand that he's talking about Satan now. How can somebody go into a strong man's house? How can somebody go into Satan's house and plunder his goods? That would be these demon-oppressed and possessed people that are all over at that time. Unless he first binds the strong man. So how can he go in there and plunder this house unless he binds the strong man first? That's the point that Jesus is making. Satan is strong. 
but he more than meets his match in the person of the Lord Jesus. So here's the question that's very important. The question is, on whose side do you want to be? And that's verses 30 through 37. Do you want to be on the side of the strong man or the stronger one? And that's the point that Jesus is making. Please see carefully what Jesus is saying here. There are some who claim that they're not hostile to Jesus. They have nothing really against Jesus. But at the same time, they're not really devoted followers. They're not devout. Jesus is okay. They would never do or say anything that that would really disparage his name. But look what Jesus says in verse 30. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. Do you know what that's saying? There is no neutral. And there's so many people that are straddling the fence, and I dare say some among us, straddling the fence. Jesus, I could take him or leave him. And Jesus says, no, you can't. There's no neutral. There's no lukewarm. It's unacceptable. We'll see that on Sunday nights, not too, not too distant future, when we talk about church at Laodicea, when the Lord Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, you make me sick, I'm nauseated, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I would rather you were hot or cold. Something very similar is happening here. If you're not with me, you're against me. And then it goes on to say, whoever does not gather with Jesus actually scatters. It's not bad enough that you're not gathering with him, but the fact that you're not gathering with him means that you're scattering. You're working against him. So twice he says the same thing. If you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever does not gather with Jesus actually scatters. Now get ready for this. Do you want to see the biggest loser in a colossal ultimate sense? And I'm not talking about a TV program, and I'm not talking about weight loss. Do you want to see the biggest loser Ever. It's in verses 31 and 32. If you look carefully at those verses, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. This speaks of what is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. The Pharisees were just about there, according to this passage. This is perhaps the most severe statement in all of the Scripture. Countless people down through the centuries have worked themselves into a frenzy wondering if they're guilty of an unforgivable sin, an unpardonable sin, an eternal sin. They wonder, have I committed this? Is it all over? Because there is this sin that is not forgivable either now or forever. Have I done that? Am I doomed for all of eternity? I've had more than a few people come to me with intense anxiety, hopelessly confessing to having committed this sin. They tell me I've done it. I've committed this unpardonable sin. 
There is no hope for my salvation ever. What was the sin? In the context that we have before us, the sin was attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. That work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and saying it was of Satan. And that was done when Jesus was here on the planet. Most of the commentators that I read and the theologians that I study will say that nobody today can commit that unpardonable sin because Jesus is not physically present, so you can't attribute something to Satan in Jesus because he's not here right now. But there are those who will say, yes, there still is an unpardonable sin. Not identical to that one, but there still is an unforgivable sin. In the ESV, there's a study note. If you have a study Bible there, it says, this blasphemy involves giving Satan credit for what is accomplished by God's power while persistently rejecting God and his commands. This sin is committed today only by unbelievers who permanently reject the Holy Spirit when he calls them to salvation. The Bible teaches that God is the great forgiver. Both Old and New Testaments are filled with verses and examples that document God's forgiveness. Notice at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, it says, as God in Christ forgave you. God is the great forgiver. And I'd like to quote from John MacArthur. It's a lengthy quote. I'd like to quote because it's intense, and it makes the point very, very clearly. No matter how severe the sin, God can forgive it. The worst conceivable sin would be to kill God's own son. And that while he was on earth for the very purpose of providing salvation from sin and the way to everlasting life. Nothing could possibly be more heinous, vicious, and wicked than that. And of course, killing him is exactly what men did to the Son of God. Yet while hanging on the cross and about to die, Jesus prayed and affirmed the forgiving mercy available to his executioners. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then he says, the degree of sin does not forfeit forgiveness because even killing the Son of God was forgivable. Nor does the volume of sin end the possibility of mercy. A 70-year-old profligate who has lived the life of debauchery, stealing, lying, profanity, blasphemy, and immorality is just as forgivable as a 7-year-old who has done nothing worse than normal childhood naughtiness. Nor does the particular kind of sin cancel grace. In Scripture, we find God forgiving idolatry, murder, gluttony, fornication, adultery, cheating, lying, homosexuality, covenant-breaking, blasphemy, drunkenness, extortion, and every other kind of sin imaginable. So again, I ask, what does it mean in verse 32 that this sin will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come? This sin that somehow has become unforgivable. Here's what I'd like to say as a result of my study. Some of these words are mine. Some of these are a compilation of others. The unforgivable sin is the ongoing, continual, and final rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is saying no to the prompting, convicting work of God the Holy Spirit for the last time. There's no forgiveness after that. It is the perversion in the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's the continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit until it becomes a final 
rejection. That is unforgivable. Pharisees at the very brink of committing this sin, they were saying the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ through his exorcisms, his miracles, were really the work of Satan. They were persisting in blasphemy because in Mark, it indicates they kept repeatedly saying this. That attitude became permanent. They would have crossed the line. To those of you who are afraid of having committed the unpardonable sin, if that even bothers you, that says you haven't done it. Because you're not persistently and finally rejecting God the Holy Spirit. You're trying to find the way out of that kind of sin. The remedy. Verses 33 through 37. Here's what Jesus said. There's a choice to be made. Either make the tree good, as you're looking again at those verses. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. In other words, be with me not against me, not ambivalent, not in the middle. Gather with me. Don't scatter. Clean up your act. Don't be vacillating back and forth. Don't be straddling a fence somewhere. Either do that or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. But then he told the Pharisees, basically, he said, your fruit isn't good. You're betrayed by what you say. You're a brood of vipers. John the Baptist called them the same thing twice, that is, now in the Scriptures. How can you speak good when you are evil? And then he makes this point. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of the mouth, when you say, oh, that just slipped out. No, it didn't. It didn't slip out of your mouth. There's no brain in your mouth. It means it slipped out of your heart. What's there is what comes out. And then the Lord Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. On the day of judgment, that doesn't apply to believers, that day of judgment will be rewarded according to our good works, but there is a day of judgment. People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Why your words? Because your words reflect what's in the heart. So this part is addressed to unbelievers. Now I've raised a lot of issues this morning that can make somebody very uncomfortable. If you would like to talk further about this, if you're wondering about, I I don't want to commit an unpardonable sin. I want to make sure I know how to be saved. I, I want to make sure I know what it is to know Christ and to be forgiven of my sins. We've got a couple of our leaders who will be right down here afterwards. Pastor Ed Lockmiller and Trustee Dave Peltz will be there. I'll be around. We'd love to talk with you further if you're confused about any of this because this can be a confusing subject. But I'd like to encourage each one of us to think in terms of the implications of two things. House divided against itself cannot stand. What are you doing to be an encourager, a unifier? When people come into this church, what are you doing to show them the badge of a disciple of the Lord Jesus? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That implication. The other implication, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're straddling the fence, if you're thinking, I don't have anything against him, but I don't have anything for him either, remember what Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if you're not helping to gather, you're scattering. He's saying, you've got to get on the right team. You can't keep vacillating back. We'd love to talk to you about that, but if you already know, 
You've heard this over and over again. You know that there is an appointment that you have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure it's today because you don't know about tomorrow. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth we have in your word. Thank you that the Lord Jesus didn't pull any punches. Thank you that this word is very, very powerful. And thank you that the warnings are severe. Perhaps the severest warning in all of the scriptures. I pray for any who are on the fence. I pray for any who felt that they're not antagonistic or hostile to the Lord Jesus. But knowing from this passage, that's not enough. Because if they're not for the Lord Jesus, they're actually against him. May no one leave here today against the Lord Jesus. May no one leave here saying no to the prompting of your Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict the world of sin. We thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So with one voice, we'll sing to the Lord. And with one heart, we will live out his word. To the whole earth, seize the Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the